This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a thrilling cyberpunk story of gangs, guns, greed, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. I am your host and narrator, Chang Terhune. Now join me, please, as we enter the strange world of tribal malfunctions. This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast, and I am your host, Chang Terhun, though some call me Charlie. Um, boy, uh, it's been a while. Episode 15 finally coming out of the gate at, I think, um, quite possibly... I'm not sure. I'm going to have to look. It's at least a year. Uh, actually, let's take a look. Let's mosey on over to our friendly old intertubes and see podcasts podcasts listen to podcasts because it makes you cool anyone want to guess um episode 14 was may 18th may 8th 2017 so a few things have happened since then uh anyway I'm so glad to be back to doing this. Um, Got to admit, it is thanks to one person that I'm actually resuming this. That would be, um, let's see, Instagram user and brother. I'm so sorry I forgot your your handle off the top of my head. Um, One second. Instagram user the remote of dust. So, uh, brother, thank you so much for telling me that you liked the podcast. I uh, wasn't convinced a lot of people were listening to it enough to follow up, um, but uh, you brought it back to life, and it's been fun to do. And I'm sorry it took me away so long, but hey, life happens. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, May eighth, two thousand seventeen. We're on episode sixteen. A lot of um, cool things coming together. I really like how the story is developing. I gotta say, redoing this um, podcast has made me realize how much I actually like this and like the story. As always, there is swearing, there is cussing. Oh, on another note, um, you know, in the beginning, as I was listening over, I had uh, a lot of uh, accents planned out for people and how they were gonna speak it. I thought that was cool. I didn't remember them all. So if you notice some difference in accents, hey brother and sisters, um, it happens. Oh, wait a sec. Oh, that was my dry, my laundry getting done. Um, so anyway, travel malfunctions. We continue with this. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And uh, here we go. Episode 15.
15 uncertain times. The flip? Oh yeah, I saw it coming, says veteran Korea watcher and Korean Peninsula's pundit, Gary Fremantle. Those seeds were sown decades ago, almost a century before the flip, in fact. But did anyone listen? No. I got stuck in an office somewhere deep in the UN's basement between a broken water closet and a storeroom the janitors ran a sex ring out of for a while. But that's another story I'm saving for my memoirs. When pressed, Fremantle's reply comes across as if the superpowers transition from a military junta to democracy back to autocracy is both apodictic and linear. You had North Korean DPRK military elite running their drug, counterfeit, and human trafficking in, out, through, and beyond South Korea. Despite what the UN and the CIA would have had you believe, they were putting lots and lots of Sokowan into the banks in Seoul, and bankers had no problem with that. I mean, we're talking billions of won, which, after the market stabilized following the brief but tragic dark ages that befell U.S. politics until around 2025 to 2030, it meant trillions and trillions of U.S. dollars. This paved the way for when the DPRK faltered. There was a famine, which they'd had before in the 1990s. Then there was the massive outbreak of the LePage virus, which ravaged the country. To say they were weak, then, is putting it way too mildly. The few people it didn't kill were too weak for too long to survive the harsh, prolonged winter. It was beyond a perfect storm of colliding events. It was divine retribution. So when the DMZ fell and the DPRK could no longer control the populace? My God, do you remember the footage? I wish I had been alive to see it. In 2050, the soldiers checking their phones, all going down in a row until finally those last two standing at the edge of the DMZ lifted the receivers from the cradle, listened, then hung up, only to salute the Soko soldiers, then unholster their pistols and shoot themselves? It was the end of a century-long military dynasty. It was, of course, the beginning of the end. China did what they could, but they've never been so hot when a humanitarian crisis rolls in. So you had another period of famine, disease, death, and unrest, which was surprisingly strong despite the LePage virus decimating the population. But once that was over and normalized in about 10 or 15 years, you had the DPRK brass emerging from hiding and quietly withdrawing their funds, making friends, paying bribes, and working their way into daily political life. It was viral, totally viral. By the time anyone noticed, the flip had been underway for decades, and all it needed was a new coat of paint and slight change of management at the top. That day I saw with my own eyes. That was also the day I got moved from a goddamn basement office up to one of the so-called war rooms of the UN. Do you remember watching the frantic efforts of Chinese-US coalition forces as they tried to reseal and rearm the DMZ? I mean, the coup and the toppling of the South Korean premier were all there was on TV for days. And this was during the 2100 World Cup, for God's sake. By the time the smoke cleared, the damage was done, cleaned up and painted over. Pyongyang became a symbol of freedom from tyranny, and as for Seoul? Well, I hate to make a pun about it, considering what happened next, but that was the day that Seoul lost its soul. 
excerpt from an interview with Gary Fremantle, Korea expert, reprinted with permission from the article The Korea Problem, Other New York Magazine, 2109. Chapter 15, Deep Sluice B. Early the next morning, Aris headed to the scrapyard, supposedly hunting for a spare part. He huddled under the shelter of an old hauler carcass, lit a cigarette, then called Yuki. Yuki Corp, she said after a series of clicks. It's me, said Aris. Yep, she said. Just keeping up appearances. What's going on? Aris relayed the previous night's discussion with Wendell in Tiny Town. Yuki grunted occasionally as he spoke. When he finished, she remained silent for a few seconds. Okay, she finally said. Going down into the wormway is so insane, it might work. I could probably arrange something with the hauler to get you in and out. What about the other thing? The mind farm B&E, said Aris. Yeah, that. I need to know what kind of security they have. Weaknesses, layouts, watch schedules. Anything you can get will be a big help. I'm literally going down into the dark. Well, there's only so much I can do from here, said Yuki. Remember that whole voice on the shoulder thing? I do, said Aris, but I can't ask anyone else. Can't Tiny Tim help? She asked. Sorry, Tiny Town. Oh, no, wait, his data rat is down there, so... Okay. So can't you get me what I need? Maybe, she replied. I just don't want to risk exposure. There's a pair of Cho's boys loitering outside 24-7 now. I can keep them at bay, but... But what? asked Aris. I don't know, said Yuki. He's always kind of a dick, but lately Cho's been getting antsy, too. He's clearly revving up for something. But these days, the fucker's usually hopped up on KK when he comes around, raving about weird shit. Well, I'm sorry he's being a prick, but I can't do anything without these guys, said Aris. Yuki sighed. Fine, she finally said. I'll see what I can do. Gonna warn you up front, it may not be very fruitful. I'll take whatever fruit you can get, said Aris, then hung up. He grabbed a warped tracking arm from a nearby pile, then returned to the office. Menea frowned at him when he came in. I don't understand why you keep going out and freezing your ass off when there's that perfectly good faker inside, she said, pointing out to the garage floor and the massive dust-to-dust faker hulking in its bay. I don't know, said Aris. Just not used to it, I guess. God, you're worse than my father, said Manea. He'd be out there hammering, welding, and grinding together anything he could find because he didn't trust them either. A wise man, said Aris. Manea shrugged. Daddy was cheap, that's all, she said. But you got that thing for free, and you're still out there scrounging around in the snow. Old habits die hard, said Aris. Stubborn husbands are stubborn, said Manea. He blew her a kiss, and she returned to her work while he fiddled with the tracking arm in his hands. The truth was, Aris loved the faker, but kept up the skeptical act. Fakers had been around for well over a hundred years and only gotten better and better. The old man didn't use them for fear the final product wasn't up to snuff. He'd show Aris broken parts from a faker, complaining about low quality, even when they were often as good or better than machined parts. The old man was one of those who stubbornly kept ordering parts online and keeping stock of regularly used materials. He didn't even allow a faker in their house. Horace bought one soon after he died. Holy Roller's dust-to-dust faker was saving them money despite the outrageous subscription rates. 
Of course, going out into the yard allowed Aris time to play in and confer with Wendell. An hour later, the phone rang. Holy roller, said Aris. It's me, said Yuki. I think I got something for you. Okay, said Aris. And when do you need that bike? Call me when you can get to a secure spot, said Yuki, and hung up. What was that about? Manea murmured from behind her terminal. Someone wants their hauler yesterday, said Aris. That blue bottle R25 Wendell's working on. Gonna see if I can help him get it out before they become a bigger pain in my ass. Okay, said Manea. Aris found Wendell in Bay 1, scrolling through a diagnostic report while sipping from a coffee cup. He nodded as Aris slipped into the crevice beside him. We need to get out in an hour or so, said Aris. Yuki says she's got something. Okay, said Wendell. Now if I just grow a clone or maybe another pair of hands. Why, said Aris. What's the problem? This thing's guidance gear control is fucked from the connectors on down to corrosion and the wiring. Like someone drove it over a saltwater marsh for two days. Let me see, said Aris. Together they took the entire component out, disassembled, then cleaned it. An hour later, after the faker squeezed out the necessary replacements, the reinstalled guidance control unit was running at 100% functionality. Once they'd cleared the hauler out of the bay and sent it back home, the two men walked up the length of the garage. Wait for me outside, said Aris. What about Manea? said Wendell. I'll take care of her, said Aris. In the office, he grabbed his coat. Wendell and I are going to lunch, he said. Where? she asked. Uh, that Thai Mexican place over on the corner of School Street. Ugh, said Manea, making a face. I'm not in the mood for pad Thai tacos or whatever they're doing, and I want to make sure everything's all squared away before I go. I've got something in the fridge, so you boys go have fun. Thanks, said Aris. Outside, he hailed a cab. They bought quick meal packets from a vending machine in the lobby of Boldman Labs. Once they were settled in a conference room, Aris called Yuki. Hey, what's up? Wait, who's this guy? She said, her holographic proxy pointing at Wendell. Why doesn't anyone ever know who I am, said Wendell, glaring at Aris. To Yuki, he said, I'm Wendell. He works for me, said Aris. I've known him for years. Trust him like a brother. He's cool. Yuki eyed Wendell. Look, I have a vested interest in this. My father and brother are incarcerated in mine farm, said Wendell. Names, said Yuki. Excuse me, said Wendell. What are their names, said Yuki. Eric and Jean-René Brochet, said Wendell. Yuki nodded while her hands disappeared from the hollow camera's view for a moment. Aris heard tapping sounds while Yuki looked off screen. She paused before nodding. Okay, she said. Looks like a bad rap, I'm sorry. Thanks, said Wendell. I hope you can help us get them out of there. Yuki gestured and a set of 3D maps and blueprints appeared on the wall before them. It showed a sprawling industrial campus along an isthmus on the south shore of Metro Boston. Each building had labels hovering above them. Administration, medical wing, laboratories, resident intake and preparation center, storage, security, maintenance, sewer treatment, water treatment, power plant, and several buildings each half a mile long marked server dormitories. Mine farms lay out a standard bioengineering facility, she said but differs in some ways like a prison or detention facility or even a server farm, which is what it really is, said Wendell. Really? 
You don't believe the ads, said Yuki, smirking, then mimicking the soothing presenter's voice. Feel like you're underutilized? Would you like an easy job with high pay and good benefits? Feel like using your mind without tiring your brain? Yeah, said Wendell, unsmiling. That. I don't believe it. Then the brochures are lying, said Yuki. Enough, said Aris. Let's keep going. Well, Wendell, you're right, said Yuki. What those pretty pictures and brochures don't show is that this place is locked up tight and has better security than a military base. Better? Aris repeated. Yep, said Yuki. No cameras within a mile of shore, and they pay a hefty blockage fee to one ski to keep them off their feed. They also run their own private fleet of drones. Shit, said Aris. I said better, but not best, replied Yuki, winking. You don't think I haven't figured out a few tricks? Over the blueprints, Yuki threw windows of video feeds. This is from Spinnaker Island's Osprey Cam, she said. Aris looked at a blurry view of the facility from a distance behind a large bird's nest. Here's one from the Pedix Island National Park Service weather station. Anything aerial, said Aris, frowning at a view of the facility from a shorter distance. Yuki smiled, then gestured. An aerial view of mine farms spread out against the shining ocean. This is from a Homeland Services blimp, said Yuki, smiling with pride. Best view yet. See the outlines of the old town where the ocean rose up? The place must have been nice before the Atlantic started washing into people's living rooms. Mind Farm's CEO got it for a steal. So what's this show us, said Wendell. What's left off blueprints and plans in the state records, said Yuki. She zoomed in on the aerial footage. See here, those bulky things moving around? Aris saw a fence between the ocean and a paved road by the outer barracks buildings. Something the size of a garbage truck moved along the path, a turret swinging along as it walked down the road. What is that? said Aris. Is that a... Wendell's words stopped in his mouth as Yuki threw out a picture from a news clipping. It showed a Tokyo City street scene after what appeared to be a lengthy battle. Four policemen stood in white armored uniforms with leather padding, heavy assault rifles slung between their arms. Behind them rose something standing on four legs. Its top a series of cylinders over which a turret sprouting several guns swung around to regard the scene. WRBRDE-320, said Yuki. Weaponized Remote Battle Reconnaissance Defense Entity, nicknamed Warbride. I count about a hundred of these on the island. Besides patrolling on foot, so to speak, they can submerge themselves in up to 10 meters of water. Which means there are most likely more of them just offshore, said Yuki, interrupting Aris. I'm not sure if they're kitted out for extended submersion, but assume for the sake of argument they are. Great. There's a limited human security presence, though, said Yuki probably because these things rely on mine farms' computing power, so not much need for manpower. What else, said Aris? What else? Well, the place is chock-a-block full of spectrum cameras, biocode-controlled doors, weight-sensitive floors, iris detection, etc. That's standard. And I thought getting into the wormway would be tough, said Aris. That is going to be a piece of cake, said Yuki. You realize you'll be the 257th break-in attempt on Mine Farm since it opened 22 years ago? 
Yeah, but Yuki shut Wendell off with a wave. It's because of human rights groups and people like yourselves trying to spring friends, lovers, and family members that this place is locked up so damn tight. No one's ever gotten past a few meters into the gates. So we're fucked, said Aris. Well, said Yuki, kind of. That's it then, said Wendell. If you didn't have me working for you, it would be yes. Yuki gestured as several documents plus complex diagrams appeared on the big screen. What the hell is that, said Aris. This is what happens if I think outside the box, said Yuki. See, all those humps who tried to get in have tried the most obvious things. Sometimes creative, but always so bloody obvious. Sea-based attacks account for 60%. 30% were land-based from the causeway posing as delivery trucks or prison transfers. The remaining 10% were aerial attacks. What the drones missed, those war brides did away with spectacularly. I bet you'll see a few craters there. Okay, said Aris. So how do we get in? Well, I thought it was hopeless until I got thinking, said Yuki. See, a place like this uses a metric shit ton of power, and all those servers and bodies generate a ton of heat. A lot of these buildings have solar panels, and they've got a nice fusion reactor, too. Nice is a bad way to describe it. The thing could power a city. They use it for their mainframes, which get really hot. So you need to cool all that down, right? Right. So what do they use, said Aris? Liquid nitrogen? Do you see any NO2 tanks there? Said Yuki, bringing the blueprints back to the front. Aris squinted at them. Nope, he replied. See some for medical use, but that's it. Right, said Yuki. So? Air conditioners, said Wendell. Fans? Seriously? Fans? Said Yuki. You guys are repairing my hauler? I may just take my business elsewhere. Jesus, said Aris, you can use one of Cho's garages then. So what is it? Well, look here, said Yuki. The map of Mine Farm was superimposed over a satellite image of the former town of Hull. Hull used to have a population of about 10 or 15,000. Mine Farm has about 50,000 residents. That's a ton of food, sewage, and heat. You can convert some of that back to energy, but a lot goes to waste, especially in the summer. Yeah, said Aris. Go on. So I thought about it and decided to play pretend. I visited a few forums where mainframe engineers and admins hang out. And you know what the easiest way to a man's heart is? His stomach, said ours. You should know, said Wendell. Manea clearly feeds you well enough. Your banter is cute, said Yuki. Nope, it's through his pride. Huh, said Wendell. Well. After a bit of fishing and making sure my fake profile had a lot of shots of a girl in a bikini that I'd never wear outside of here, I found a fellow by the name of Chuck Bingham. A mine farm security badge appeared, showing a man about Aris's age, sub-Saharan African features, and a pleasant smile. Yuki continued, Chuck here liked my style and my questions, especially when I was wondering how to cool myself down, so to speak. Oh, brother, said Wendell, chuckling. That poor guy. Yeah, he was sweet, said Yuki. He's taking some vacation time soon to visit me in the Canaries. But poor, horny, overworked Chuck Bingham will be heartbroken. What did he tell you, said Aris? That mine farm solves its coolant issues with seawater. Yuki folded her arms across her chest and smiled. Too easy, said Aris. Makes sense, though, but, well, so what? So what, said Yuki. So here's the deal. The seabed drops rapidly off the coast right near Hull. The water is always about 48 degrees Fahrenheit at this depth. 
There's an intake pipe running from here, Yuki threw a map on screen, with a yellow dot a few inches to the right of what used to be Hull's eastern shore, all the way into the facility to end here. Its terminus was the sewage and water treatment facility next to the server barracks area. In the aerial view, Ara saw a half dozen enormous geodesic domes connected by channels of murky water. From there, it's pumped all over the complex. Huh, said Ars. And we're supposed to get in how? The intake is a little over two meters wide, said Yuki. The central pump station that circulates water around the facility also sucks that water in at a good clip. You get sucked in and it's... It's like a water park ride or something, said Wendell, shaking his head. It's a mile-long ride in a narrow pipe that spits us out where exactly, said Ars. I don't like the sound of this. Not one of the water-based break-in attempts tried this? Well, they didn't have horny Chuck Bingham on their side, said Yuki. No one's been able to find the hidden intake. Those war brides are out there, though, right? Too deep, said Yuki. Plus, with it hidden, Mine Farm probably figures no need to keep it fully guarded, only locked. Okay, said Ars. So we get in there. Then what? Once you're inside, you need to find a terminal to the mainframe. Tell it a little story I'll email you, and I'll be able to guide you from there. Wait, what? said Wendell. You don't know where these inmates are? Inmates, said Yuki. Mine Farm prefers to call these inhabitants or residents their intellectual concierges. Oh, for fuck's sake, said Wendell. And the answer is no, said Yuki. Not from outside. But once I'm inside their system, I can tell you where to go from the water plant. I see a few problems here, said Wendell. First is, how do we dive to that intake pipe? Not my problem, said Yuki. I'm just information. I got an idea for that, Wendell, said Aris. I'll tell you later. Okay, said Wendell. He then stood and pointed at Mine Farm's sprawling facility. This place is huge. There's not one, but six server barracks areas in here, with a dozen buildings each. So you have to tell us which one we're heading to only after we get in? But what if they're all on the other side of the place? That's a hell of a walk, especially with all those war brides stomping around out there. Yuki nodded as she swallowed a few pills with water. Do you guys know how the mine farm actually works? She said. Kind of, said Oz. Yuki nodded. They use their residents or inmates or whatever you want to call them. They use their brains to maintain certain cognitive routines and functions. It's IQ-based, so depending on how smart they are, some are used for high-end computation, and others are used for simpler things like security systems. Mindfarm uses basic pattern recognition algorithms for those. Okay, said Ars. Mindfarm is so confident in its own abilities, it runs the entire facility with its proprietary watchdog services. Or at least, that's what Chuck Bingham said while revealing his weird sex habits. Keep going, said Wendell. Anyway, the war brides all run with a low-level routine, kind of like aggressive guard dogs. Low-level threads and programs run most day-to-day -day operations there, so they have a comparatively small human staff. During the day, there are people monitoring the servers, medical staff, custodians, groundkeepers, etc., but at night, there's only 20 or 30 people working that whole complex. Seriously? said Ars. That's it? That's it, said Yuki. 
So were someone to get in and cause a little hiccup in the facility one night, well, that certain someone could buy her friends a good couple of hours to roam the premises unnoticed. So you can knock out the war brides and buy us some cover, said Wendell. Not only that, said Yuki, but I can knock out the drones, the watchdogs, and the night watchmen too, whatever you want to call it. That plus some good old computational trickery in the entire mine farm facility would be blind and dark for a little while. Long enough for us to run from one end of the island to the other, said Wendell. Aris nodded in agreement. I'm not so sure about that, said Yuki, but judging by your father and brother's rap sheets, I can take a good guess at where they're being held. The two men's mugshots appeared above them, their offenses listed alongside each unsmiling face. Aris noticed how much Wendell resembled his father. Both have high IQs, said Yuki, which means they're most likely in one of these two areas. She illuminated two barracks near the water plant in yellow. What about Tiny Town's guy, said Aris. He's probably on the other side of that section, said Yuki. She illuminated a building on the other end. You'll have to run a bit. Better quit smoking, said Wendell, and Aris flipped him the bird. Any idea what it looks like in there, said Aris. Yuki shook her head. Nope, she replied. Mine Farm is paranoid about external oversight. Intellectual property, corporate intelligence agents, etc. Nothing on the net, nothing on the subnet or darknet, which is kind of weird. Did Chuck Bingham have anything to say about operations, like what happens in the server barracks? He was coy about it, said Yuki. Said I could get a personal tour from him. Said it was kind of like a hospital setup with people in special creches or beds, but something about it also gave him the creeps. He didn't want to talk about it much. Changed the subject pretty quickly back to what would happen above and below our waistlines when we met. Ew, said Wendell. Straight sex. I have that effect on guys, she said, shrugging. Okay, anyway, said Aris. We need to get into that pipe, get out of the water plant, get to a mainframe and crack a virtual window for you, then you can tell us exactly where everybody is. Is that everything? Yeah, said Yuki, in a nutshell. As long as we do this when dear Chuck Bingham is out of town, we should be pretty much set. When is that? said Wendell. He's leaving Friday night, said Yuki. No one's filling in for him. If his arrogance is any sign, Mine Farm thinks their place is impregnable, so they don't need anyone on the weekends. He's going to be pissed when he lands in the Canaries, said Wendell. And he finds out you're not there, or even real. Yep. When his name shows up on a Homeland Services no-fly list when he tries to fly back, oh boy, yeah, he's not. He's looking at a long visit with them once he returns to Logan. That's cold, said Aris. Yuki shrugged. Okay, we'd better get back. Aris stood up. I'll get everything together that we need. Can you give me a 12 or 18 hour warning? I'll do my best, said Yuki. Later. She disappeared as windows blinked out like popping bubbles. The two men took a cab back to the garage. How the fuck are we gonna pull this off, said Wendell, rubbing his scalp. I've got some ideas, said Aris. It's like Yuki said, just gotta think outside of the box. She's cute, said Wendell. Not my type, but I can see why you'd like her. Like her, said Aris. She's a kid. She's like three years younger than you. It's not like you think, said Aris. Wendell smirked and gazed out the window at the passing skyline. Three days later, on a Friday night at 9.39 p.m., Aris found himself on a fishing boat three miles off the South Shore coast, looking at Mine Farm's lights glowing in the distance. 
It was an old fishing boat, and Aris didn't know if they caught lobster, tuna, or cod with it. Huge nets hung from long arms on the midships. The wheelhouse glowed orange where Tiny Town's cousin piloted it. Still can't believe I'm fucking doing this, said Wendell. I can't believe you're fucking wearing that, said Aris, before laughing and pointing at Wendell. They stood at the stern, each wearing a fat suit. Underneath, they wore tight one-piece coveralls and tactical boots. By design, the fat suits would keep them dry as if they were going down in personal submarines. Wendell shook his head and spat politely off the deck. My papa won't be thrilled, but I'm sure he'll understand once we get him out. Just about there, said Nine Knives, emerging from the cabin. You want to piss or take a dump? Uh, do it now, because who knows when or where we'll be able to get to go again. We're heading for the sewage plant, right? Tai Tai said from behind him. So we could just go that... Shut the fuck up, said Nine Knives. Tai Tai laughed. You two down with this, said Aris. They caught his tone and straightened up. You know what we're in for? You know it, said Tai Tai, sliding a small battery pack into the inner compartment of his suit. I was born down and heavy, grew up hard and ready. Aris frowned. Let me go over it one more time, he said. Something tells me you're not totally solid on all the details. Sure, said Tai Tai. Let me get the other guys out here. He banged on the edge of the door. Hey, Chosun One, Ted X, get the hell out of here. Two more heavy boys appeared from the cabin. Their pale, sweating faces gleamed under the cabin's light in the cold air. You guys seasick, said Aris. No, said one of them. Chosun One, Aris thought. Just chillin' is... The boy leaned over the side and vomited. The others laughed as he recovered, spitting and wiping his mouth with his hand. Not used to this, huh? Just keep the suit on low and keep the flux variable, said Aris. That'll counteract the ocean's rolling. The heavy boys remained silent. Aris shook his head and spat. Not gonna lie, I'm worried. Back in my day, we never practiced and prepared for anything more than standing on a corner looking tough, acting down and heavy. Oh man, look, I'd have brought my tablet if I thought this was gonna be another history lesson, said Ted X, the smaller of the two. Nine Knives elbowed him hard in the gut and the boy silenced himself after a brief retch. Watch it, said Nine Knives. Tedex straightened up from the blow, trying to look composed and relaxed. Nine Knives pointed at Aris. This guy's more down and heavy than you're ever gonna be, so shut the fuck up and pay attention. The younger boys stood taller and looked at Aris. Sorry, said Nine Knives. They're a little green, but they're good. Better be, said Aris. This ain't a dash and grab. This is a fucking big deal. Screw up and get caught, and we'll be lucky if we only get sent to those chem pens. He pointed north towards dark barges anchored off the harbor islands. If not, those war brides patrolling the place will kill us. You got it? Yes, sir, they said, one after the other. Okay, good. Aris climbed up on a box and grabbed a cable for balance. So when I get the all clear, we seal the suits and dive. You keep an eye out for my marker on your shades, right? They nodded. Set your suits for 300% mass and be ready to flip that off the second I give the signal. You miss it, and you'll drop straight to the bottom and roll around for a while. God help you if you resurface, because who the fuck knows where you'll be, or how you'll get home. I've got the coordinates and the combination for the intake crate, said Aris. We keep formation, and everything should be fine. Just go pop, pop, pop into that tube, all right? Murmurs and nods from them now. It could get a little hairy on the way in. Right in a tube is one thing. Control's going to keep the tributaries and capillaries blocked off. It ought to be a straight shot. We'll empty into the main tank, which Control will have open. 
Aris spread a holographic map out between his hands, showing the rectangular building and one large room inside. Once we're out of the tank, we need to move fast. Very fast. Control will occupy security with a little diversion that should buy us enough time to find a terminal and get Control's eyes inside the system. Once she shuts it down and finds our targets, we move. That's the last of her magic tricks. After that, it's up to us. You got it? Yes, sir, said Chosen One. Wendell, Nine Knives, and I will be going after his father and brother. You guys are in charge of finding Blindside. If we find a workstation or a lab, we can do it easier. What else, said TEDx. What do you mean, said Ars. Can we pick up a little extra, said TEDx, rubbing his fingers together. No, said Aris, waving his hand low. Nope, absolutely not. This is strictly a human extraction gig, so absolutely nothing else. We're fucked if anyone's souvenirs gets found or rumor gets out one of your friends knows who did the mine farm job. The fallout from this is so going to be so massive that you and your all base got to disappear for a few months at least. Ah, shit, said TEDx. So how do we get out? Tai Tai asked. Return to the tank and leave the way we came in, said Aris. But the water's running in, right? Said Chosen One. So how are we gonna... Jesus Christ, said Aris. How many times have I gone over this? Five, said Wendell, eyeing the pale boys in their black suits. He shook his head, then held his hand up, fingers splayed. Five times, Aris. You're the best of the best, huh? Said Aris. He shook his head, rolled his eyes behind dropped shades, exaggerating his disgust. Shit. Tiny Town has his hands fucking full, man, I'll tell you that. Yo, said TEDx. We done more B&Es than you lately. Heard you were the Mac back in the day, but it's 2125, son. What have you done? Me? I've gone into the BPD archives five times in the last year to pull trial evidence. Chosun One stolen top-notch science shit from gene labs out in Lexington and the science parks on Route 128. So don't give us shit and call us amateurs, old man. Horace glared and took a step forward before Wendell stopped him. Then how are we getting back, young one? Wendell said, crossing his arms over his chest. If you're such a big, bad B&E daddy hearing it for the fifth or sixth time, then... Control's empty in the tank, said TEDx. Forces an emergency shutdown and empties everything into the harbor. We get flushed out like shit and you'll float like it too, said Chosen One, looking over the rims of his shades at Wendell. You fat little mother... Wendell took a step forward. The boat lurched. Artis shouted at them, grabbing Wendell. Back off, Wendell. Easy with the mass, Chosen One. The heavy boy smiled as the boat righted itself, ripples stalking away from the gunnels. Fucking idiot, said Nine Knives, looming over the small boy with a raised fist. You pull a mass drop out here on a boat and we're fucked. This ain't a corner or a fucking tea car. It's the fucking ocean, yo. Horace watched them and considered calling it off. Tiny Town assured him these were boys who could handle it. But if he backed out, would they get another chance? And would it be a better crew? No time to fuck around or turn back, he thought. All right, cut the bullshit, he said to the crew. Save the bragging for afterwards. You want to get out of this alive, then we got to work together. Got it? They all nodded, chosen one's head moving the slowest. Stay sharp, said Aris. He turned away and tapped his jaw, sub-vocalizing into the mic. Control, you there? Well, that was fun, said Yuki. She'd chosen the handle control rather than reveal her identity to the rest of the group. Bunch of little fat boys flexing their dicks. Yeah, said Aris. Got a weird fucking crew here. Total mixed bag. I thought it was all a united front with you heavy boys, she said. Aris replied. Not as much these days. 
plus wandles from a rival gang altogether. All right, the infamous K or BK, said Yuki. You all not getting along? Got some travel malfunctions happening, huh? I hope not, said Aris. Need everyone to act smart and stay sharp. So how we looking anyway? Almost ready, said Yuki. About another minute. Just putting all my digital ducks in a row. Longer we're out here, the more exposed we are, said Aris. Past a couple state police harbor patrol boats on the way out. Well, it's all clear now. You're pretty much alone, said Yuki. No chatter on the comms. A quiet night in the harbor. You'll be underwater in... Wait a second. Silence augmented with a hiss of radio silence static held for a second. Okay, be ready to move on my go. Got it, said Ars. He waved at the others and spoke aloud. Heads up, we're almost ready. A minute later, there was a flash in the sky as something big and fiery descended, leaving a streaking trail of sparks in its wake. It hit the ground near the mine farm with a delayed bang that rolled over the water towards them. That's my big diversion, said Yuki. Here we go. Time to get wet. This is it, Aris shouted. Dive! As he stepped on the gunwale, Aris pulled the collar of his suit over his head, then pulled his arms and feet in. This action immediately caused the secure cowl to form and instantly seal the suit. Alarms sounded in his ears and flashed in his hood as the suit formed an atmospheric bubble within. Once the suit sealed, Aris was enclosed in a matte black ball. He rolled overboard, kicking his mass up 300%, a quarter of the suit's capacity. He sank like a giant black pearl, watching the suit's depth gauge while looking for the intake valve location. Just after he hit the water, five blips appeared on his sonar, each dropping fast. His moke nines, just released and coveted by all the heavy boys, showed five red dots floating in an uneven line around his depth gauge, suit mass display, oxygen levels, and other feeds. He prayed he calculated enough air to last the journey. Control, he said. You copy? Loud and clear, said Yuki. Chime in, boys, said Aris. Chill some one here. Tie time, full effect. Nine knobs, ready and able. Ted X and full F. Already said that asshole. Shut the fuck up, Ted. Can it. Wendell, shouted Aris. Wendell, you there? This sucks, said Wendell. I think, I think I'm gonna be sick. Don't puke in there, man, said Aris. Otherwise, you're going to be swimming in that shit when we hit the tunnel. Nasty, said Wendell. How can you stand these suits? I don't even... Got a ping, said Aris. Bright blue dot shone in the darkness below him. Intake valve, 500 meters and closing. Get ready, said Control. At 10 meters out, I'll blow the grate. The suction will be pretty intense, so you'll just shoot up there. Be ready. Born ready, said Chosen One. For almost a minute, Aris listened to his breathing and the steady ping of his descent. Okay, said Yuki. Great blows in five, four, three. Drop your weight to normal now. Reduce your drag, Aris shouted. He felt his suit jerk and wobble. The walls rippled from the shockwave and then the shell solidified as it bumped hard against something. The suit's radar built a composite image of a tube and several large rocks around it. After another bump, it sucked him in. Jesus, my ears! Tai Tai whined. Aris watched as the others all followed him up the tube. You have about a minute in there, said Yuki. End of the line is the main tank. Don't dawdle. No problem. I want out of this thing now, said Wendell. Sonar showed a few sealed pipes off to the side. Aris could hear water rushing outside the suit. Water temperature was 44 Fahrenheit and rising. 
Get ready, said Ars. Surfacing and about, he expected to burst forth from the water like a great white shark breaching the surface that he'd seen on TV. But there was no explosion, only a sense of floating free, then bobbing around. Aris aimed the suit's small emergency maneuvering jets towards a ladder on the wall below a maintenance port. He trimmed his weight, then righted himself. With the ladder, he slipped open the cowl, popped his arms and legs out, then climbed. The heavy crank spun as the hatch opened above him, raining fluorescent light down into the tank. The suit's emergency deflation rang the tank like a bell with its flatulent blast. At the top of the ladder, Aris paused, then, peeking his head out, found the massive pump room empty. He climbed out fully, then flopped onto the metal deck. Once he stood up, he slipped off his fat suit. His tie-tie emerged from the tank. You gotta get moving, said Yuki. I need to get to that terminal fast. The cameras can see you for sure. Well, the warbrides here in a minute or less. What was that diversion, said Ars. A shooting star? Yuki laughed. I fried a big old drone out of the sky. Nothing important, just one from a low-level celebrity spy show. It'll make folks at Mine Farm nervous, but not for long. Aris, freed from his suit, ran along the deck and kept low as he looked for a workstation. Two water tank filtration monitors stumped him before he finally found a working desktop unit. Got it, he said. Then get me in there, said Yuki. Aris pulled the flat black CPU from a slot under the desk. Into a matching socket, he plugged in the device Yuki had given him. The screen flickered as if he'd kicked the CPU, then a quick stream of code flashed across it. Aris, shouted Wendell. He looked to see four of the others out of their suits in the tank area. Who's missing, said Aris. That kid Ted, said Wendell. Nah, gee, I'm right here. Ted popped out of the tank door and waved his hand. Well, we got worse company, said Wendell. He pointed towards the pumping station's tall windows. Outside, harsh floodlights limited the grounds all the way to the water's edge. Wendell's finger pointed to an access road where a pair of chalk-white war brides bearing mine farm logos were trotting towards them, turrets spinning and lights flashing. Where you at, Control? said Aris. Working it, she said. They got a lot more protocols and firewalls than I expected. Tell her to hurry up, said Wendell. I don't want to die here. Tell Wendell I don't want him to die either, said Yuki but it'll take as long as it takes. The war brides rolled up to the windows then snapped their searchlights on. The room was lit in a harsh glow, bright as the sun. Aris and Wendell ducked below the workstation. Down the catwalk's length, Aris saw the others hiding behind a row of blue chemical barrels. Searchlights swayed over the room then snapped and froze on the main tank's open hatch. Fuck, hissed Wendell. Control, where we at, whispered Aris. Come on, man, come on, Yuki whispered, anxiety in her voice. The searchlight swung away as the war brides trudged off. They gone, said Nine Knives. Hope so, said Chosen One. Doubt it, said Aris. Sit tight until I give the... There was a metallic groan and the staccato drum roll of a giant garage door lifting. The lights swung back on as the war brides lumbered into the room. Fuck, said Tai Tai. Shut it now, hissed Aris. The robots split up at the far end of the room, each taking one of the large aisles to either side of the tanks. Their heads swung around, scanning the space while gun arms rotated in their sockets with a loud whirring sound. The hiss and clank of their massive legs shook the room, rattling the desk over Aris's head. One stopped by the tank hatch as the other proceeded down the aisle towards them. Yuki, Aris whispered. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, still working on it. But said Yuki. Man, this system is a bitch and a half. Over by the hatch, a war bride stood on its legs like a cat to get a better look, searchlights inches from revealing the other's location. It whirred and ticked like an insect as it scanned the decking. The other one stood right behind them. Aris glanced at Wendell, the Moke Nines hiding his eyes. Wendell's face showed all the fear Aris felt, and more. There was silence for long enough that Aris thought the war bride might turn away. He leaned forward an inch past the edge of the desk, peering straight into the war bride's sensor head. Its lenses, small antennas, and a dozen other protuberances he couldn't discern stared back at him. Aris saw his face reflected in the main eye and a half dozen smaller faces looked back. It was so close he heard the lenses whirring as they focused in on him. Numerous mouths agape and fearful eyes hidden behind black lenses were reflected. The war bride roared. Later, Aris would realize it was probably an alarm sounding. Its lights swung on him and brightened. Aris ducked back under the desk, blocking Wendell, though he was sure he could see them both. The other unit swung around to back up its cohort. Both put their full search array on him. Aris felt the heat of the lights as his gut cooled and froze. As weapon-studded mechanical arms swung into view, Aris thought of every stupid lie he'd told Manea, and every time he yelled at his children, when the war bride's searchlights dimmed and went out. Fuck me, Wendell whispered in the darkness. The war bride, looming above them, sagged into its joints, then stopped. The other crumpled on its teetering metal legs to the floor in the aisle. Phew. Okay, said Yugi. I think they're out. Really, said Aris. You sure? Yep, she said. Kick one. Aris opted for snapping his fingers in front of the dead black camera eyes instead. It did nothing. Thanks, said Aris. Took you long enough, Control, said Wendell. You're welcome, asshole, she replied. They had some funky shit going on in there that a gearhead like you wouldn't understand. We'll take your word for it, said Aris, coming out from under the desk. He looked at the war bride looming over him, then sat at the workstation. So what have you got? Building a plan now, she said. The other four came down the walkway, delicate, moving around the still forms of the robots. How much time do we have, asked Aris. Hold on just a second, she replied, sighing. Okay. Good news is the security system's offline and I've mapped the whole place out, so I know exactly where your people are. Great, said Wendell. What's the... The room went dark. The rumbling pumping system noisily ground to a halt around them. Uh, that's the bad news, she said. I was trying to keep main power online, but they're controlled by another subsection of mine farms, so... Sorry. That means, said Aris. It'll be dark, Yuki replied. The shades do infrared, said Nine Knives. We can see fine. Okay, said Yuki. But they control the doors at the same level of security, so every single one's locked tight. Better grab a crowbar or something, because you'll need it to pry open any door you come across. Fuck, said TEDx. How are we supposed to find these guys without the map? A ping in his hood showed a secure packet sent to all of them as Aris opened it and found a full three-dimensional map of Mine Farm. That's how. Your location is green. Theirs are blue and yellow, said Yuki. Blue team is Aris and Wendell. Fuck I gotta be yellow for, said Chosen One. Nine Knives snapped his fingers at the boy. You have one hour, said Yuki. Maybe an hour and a half tops. I can fight them off for a while, but once they figure out how I got in, they'll patch it and shut me out for good. They're gonna need time to reboot the system, said Nine Knives. Run checks and... We can recap later, said Aris, waving Nine Knives silent. 
To Yuki, he said, Control, you sure on that hour and a half? Just to play it safe, she replied. Anything more is too big a gamble. Okay, said Aris. Let's move out. Be back here in an hour and fifteen or less. Understood? No later. Everyone nodded. Now move. Aris and Wendell made for the big door left open by the war brides. Then they split off from the others. The blue dots marking Wendell's brother and father blinked at the far end of the complex, while a yellow dot marking Blindside's location was only three buildings away. Aris and Wendell ran down the asphalt road, separating the middle and western blocks. Each gray warehouse stood three or four stories high, roofs bristling with compressors, tubes, and fans. A number painted three meters high in yellow marked the side of each building's corner. Below these were the name of a famous philosopher. They ran past Wittgenstein, Plutarch, and Hippocrates, before stopping at Confucius II. This is it, said Aris, panting. Wendell nodded. Why they got a Confucius II, I wonder? One isn't enough? There's a lot of Chinese around here, said Wendell, approaching the door and tapping the lock. You think this will... Give me that, said Aris. He grabbed the crowbar Wendell took from the pumping station, then jammed it into the lock plate. After a third wrenching tug, the lock cracked, and the door gave way with a screech and a groan. They stepped into darkness. Thank you for the maps, Control, said Aris. Otherwise, we'd be fucked. You're welcome, Yuki croaked in his ear. The building was a half mile long, divided into three sections. To the left was short-term care. Long-term care stood to the right. In the center was the life support, sanitary, and medical facilities for the entire building. Okay, you in? She asked. Jacques is in creche 3456 Sierra Tango. Jean Robert is in creche 4489er Lima Tango Hotel Whiskey Pueblo. Get your brother first. Shorter revival time. Got it, said Wendell. They stepped up to the short-term care door and found it opened freely. Inside was a large room running the building's width. Smoked glass doors before them were marked Confucius II slash STC1. These doors required more force than the others. Despite being glass, they didn't crack under repeated blows from the crowbar. Aris and Wendell finally pried them apart, then the slightly easier interior doors. When these opened, they stepped into the dormitory itself. Aris knew he'd never forget what he saw there. He vowed he'd never allow anyone he loved to enter Mine Farm, no matter how bad their circumstances. The ceiling was cramped with rows of pipes and tubes stacked over each other like layers of dark, frozen worms. Ice encrusted some of these. It was melting already, so hazy clouds hung around the pipes, obscuring them. Clusters of pipes descended from the ceiling in thick trunks, which split and spread around the room. These dripped with condensation, thick ropes of the stuff slowly dripping down like lines of maggots. Despite being in a room full of hundreds of sleeping and unconscious people, the space had an air not of tranquility and peace, but of death and decay. The smell was clean and too antiseptic, with the unmistakable hint of human waste underneath. Aris wondered what it sounded like when the power was on. For now, it was silent except for a low, shimmering rustle that floated around the room, occasionally broken by dull, vague noises. Dreaming? Aris wondered it to himself. Jesus Christ, said Wendell. This fucking place has the worst vibe ever. Let's find Jacques and Papa and then get the fuck out of here. Once they determined how the creches were ordered, they made their way down darkened rows. 
They stenciled numbers in blue at the end of each crash's gleaming white surface. Each had an opaque glass hood obscuring the occupant's body and face. As Aris passed them, he had a feeling like passing a graveyard at midnight and cursed himself for being childish and fearful. Raised on a healthy diet of vivid Filipino ghost stories his father told them, Aris worried a crash might pop open, a cadaverous occupant clawing him inside. I found him, Wendell said aloud. Aris almost shushed him for fear of waking the others as he came alongside his friend. Any idea how to open these, Control? said Aris. Brute force, said Yuki. Without power, these are locked as tight as cuff. Don't even say it, said Wendell. As Aris placed a hand on his shoulder, Wendell shook it off. He slid the crowbar under the thick keypad midway down the panel. It gave way instantly as he leaned hard on it. With a few sharp cracks, the hood opened. Wendell handed Aris the crowbar, then lifted the lid slowly. Even without his shade's false color light, the body inside looked dead. The man inside was naked. Only a rubber and plastic codpiece clung to his loins, with a tube snaking between his legs. A mask fed by many tubes hugged the face. A helmet bristling with spiking needles and wires covered his head. The odor rising from within was of someone asleep for a while, warm and fetid. The man's skin was pale and wrinkled like they had submerged him in a bath too long. Help me get this shit off, said Wendell. He went to work on the face mask. Aris stood motionless. Wendell stopped and glared at him. The fuck, man? It's just, well... Aris gestured at Jacques' crotch. What? said Wendell. I feel weird about handling his... Oh, you fucking asshole, said Wendell. His junk ain't gonna bite you. I, I, I know, I... Fine, you get his mask off, said Wendell. Aris heard Yuki snicker and ignored it. He felt around the man's neck, surprised at how warm his skin was. There should be a lock, said Yuki. Those are standard medical masks they use on coma patients or in, or in ICUs. Just feel around for a rubbery button. That's what his wife said on their wedding night, said Wendell. Oh, shit, said Yuki, laughing. Glad you're both icy enough to talk shit, said You're here, so... Wait, wait, I got it, said Aris as he pressed the button. The back of the mask slipped off the man's neck. Go easy, said Yuki. He's got a breathing tube, a feeding tube, plus kind of way up his nose. Take it out slow. Aris gently drew the mask away, revealing a dark, sleeping face. From the gaping mouth, two tubes emerged, slick and slimy with saliva and mucus. Aris pulled them slowly with one hand and the mask with the other. They came loose as Jacques gagged. Wendell removed the codpiece from his brother's groin with a sucking sound. He threw this aside, then pushed Aris away to stand over his brother. Jacques, said Wendell. Jacques. You still need to get that neural cap off, said Yuki. I don't think he's got anything hardwired in there, but just be careful. Wendell peeled the fabric back, then gently lifted his brother's head and pulled it out. Looks clear, said Wendell. Good, said Yuki. Now for that syringe. Wendell slid a silver metallic syringe from his thigh pocket. Where do I put it again, he asked. Over the heart is good, said Yuki. Wendell placed the syringe against his brother's chest and pushed the plunger. It hissed as it released its contents into his blood. What's in it, he asked. A shot full of the same hormones secreted in human blood when we wake up from deep sleep, she said. Plus a heaping dose of adrenochrome. He's going to be alert and hungry as hell in a minute. 
Aris and Wendell watched as Jacques slowly stirred, moving an arm. They keep the muscles toned and active via electrical stimulation, said Yuki. He'll be a little wobbly, but able to walk. I don't think running is an option yet. Aris glanced at his watch. 35 minutes down. Jacques coughed and opened his eyes. Jacques, said Wendell. C'est moi, Wendell, Jacques, ça va bien. Jacques' head wobbled as he struggled to focus on Wendell. Wendell, he croaked. Où suis-je? Wendell hugged him, speaking fast in Creole. Aris keyed into the other team's comms. Yellow team, what's your status? We good, said Nine Knives. Got blindside up and into some clothes. You know, that guy's hung like a... Don't know, don't care, said Aris. Get back to the pumping station. We may run late. If we don't get there in time, get the hell out. Wait, what? No, you sure? Said Nine Knives. Man, we could... Positive, said Aris. My orders. Get going. Yuki pinged him on a private channel. What's up? Hey, uh, I'm looking at the different setups they use here, said Yuki. Some weird shit is going on. Yeah, that's great, said Aris. I'm not sure now's the time. No, said Yuki. That's the thing. Jacques' sentence was light, so he's in short-term care, as they put it. So, said Aris. Well, their father's got a longer sentence. Right, said Aris, watching Wendell gently dress his brother, speaking to him softly. So the dad's in long-term care, said Yuki. They have a different setup for each uh, sleeper. So what do you mean? I mean, I don't think you're getting his father out as easily as you did Jacques. What? said Aris. And why? For long-term care units, they use these... Oh, fuck, they're coming. Yuki muttered something unintelligible. Gotta go. Aris listened to radio hiss as he watched Wendell lift his brother out of the crash. Who the fuck is this blanky male? said Jacques, raising a weak arm to point at Aris. He's getting us out of here, said Wendell. Aris helped him carry Jacques to the main lobby where they sat him on a bench. What if security comes, said Aris. Just leave him here? Don't worry about me, beige, said Jacques, smiling weakly. I'll tell them I woke up dreaming I fucked their wives and wanted to see if they were as good in the flesh. Better hope the war brides don't come first then, said Aris. They don't have a sense of humor. Let's go, said Wendell. Leaving Jacques on the bench, they ran to the other door marked Confucius II slash LTC. Inside, the long-term care space differed greatly from the other side. Instead of rows of creches connected to pipes and wires from ceiling trunks, they found a room containing human-sized columns stretching all the way to the end, each with an array of tubes descending from the ceiling. Each column gleamed like polished marble blocks waiting to be carved into statues. The room didn't remind him of death, but the sense of overall absence was even more disturbing. What the fuck, said Aris. I feel it too, but come on, said Wendell. Papa's down here. Wendell had the arrangement figured out in a second. Just over halfway down and a few rows in, Wendell stopped before a comma, like all the others. They stenciled numbers on the top with the name Jean-Robert Brochet underneath. Why have him sleep upright, said Aris. Don't know, said Wendell. Help me open it. The column reminded Aris of the white case he'd seen a cellist at their wedding carry their instrument in. It glinted faintly under their fa- false lights and was smooth to the touch. A seam ran along the side of the floor, but Aris couldn't find a release. Wendell crouched and leaned around the back. Here, he finally said, found the emergency release. First, there was a slow sucking sound, then a pop. As the seal opened, a thick, viscous liquid poured out in ropey globs, pooling at their feet. What the fuck? 
Wendell's voice stopped as he rose and looked inside the creche. Aris kept his repulsion in check, just short of vomiting, then stepped back, trying not to slip in the fluid on the floor. Inside was a dark-skinned man, resembling Wendell and his brother. His face was slack and sleep, while his open mouth held a similar breathing feeding tube like Jacques. The floppy feeding tube Wendell pulled free spewed a brown, sweet-smelling paste that mixed with the goo on the floor. Once the breathing tube was free, they gaped at Wendell's father. He had no arms nor legs. The case fit snug around him, formed perfectly to a body that was only a torso and a head. A snug electrode cap clung to his skull. Ara saw behind it where the skull had been cut away and his brain exposed to wires snaking inside. Wendell whispered as he removed his another syringe and pressed it against his father's skin. Papa, whispered Wendell. Papa. The man's eyelids fluttered and the tongue rolled in his mouth. Papa, said Wendell. C'est moi, papa. The man's eyes opened but held no focus, no recognition. Wendell, said Ars. Man, I don't think we can bring him back like... Wendell's expression silenced Aris, who watched as Wendell put a hand to his father's chest and face, then gently touching the neat stumps where his arms had been. The tube codpiece clung to his genitals, and below this, the stumps of his legs fit into the creche's molded form. Shit, okay, I'm back, said Yuki. They're feisty, but I bought you guys another half hour, maybe, so you're in long-term care, right? What did you find? Fine, said Aris. Yuki, it's, it's bad. I know. I was afraid of that, she said. I'd heard rumors, but I didn't think they'd adapt long-term care people for these things. But... Aris watched his friend weep. You could have told us, or... Aris, I'm sorry. I didn't know what you'd find, she said. Did you want me to psych you out with rumors and conspiracy theories? Shit, man. No one's seen this place before. You're the first non-employees in there since they opened. Mine Farm keeps everything locked tight. No media, no pictures, no visitors, no nothing. Their employee non-disclosure agreements are as binding and secret as something out of that show, Little Annie. That mine farm's got these rigid intellectual property agents who've been charged with murders. They arrest and sue anyone who comes near the facility. If I'd known, I'd have told you. But if it weren't for Chuck Bingham, I could never get you in there. Wendell murmured something to his father, then began singing in a high, cracking voice. Can we even get him out, said Aris? Like this, I mean? I doubt it, said Yuki. Looks like he's wired in, but hard. He'll die unless you get him to a hospital immediately. But you'd have to rebuild his skull. Wendell, uh, I'm sorry, but he's not going anywhere, man. Aris said aloud. We have to go now. Wendell looked at Aris and back at his father, without stopping his song. You've got about 25 minutes, said Yuki. Okay, said Aris. Shit, Wendell, I'm sorry, we can't bring him... He'll die if we do. Wendell looked at his father's body. Wendell, man, said Aris. We gotta go. Help me, said Wendell. Help me. No, Wendell, said Aris. We can't take him. I fucking know that, Wendell shouted. It echoed in the silent space. I need you to help me put him back in. Oh, said Aris. Okay. If you can seal him back up, said Yuki, he'll, he'll be okay for an hour or so. Once the power is back, the creches will boot up and run a diagnostic. It'll replace whatever fluids he's lost. Okay, said Aris. You hear that, Wendell? He's going to be okay if we close this back up. Wendell said nothing as he carefully fed the tubes back into his father's mouth. Aris was amazed he knew not to run the feeding tubes into his lungs. 
In a minute, they were pushing the lid closed, then Wendell was cranking the rear handle to reseal it. Let's go, he said, and left with ours in tow. Who wills Papa, said Jacques from the spot on the bench. Wendell shook his head, jaw clenched hard. Outside Confucius II, they found a small hover cart and helped Jacques in. They rode fast in the darkness, Wendell holding his brother up in the back seat as Aris drove. They pulled up to the pumping station doors just as Yuki spoke. Power's coming online soon, she said. The war brides will be down for a few seconds after that, but not long. Suddenly the lights came on and the pumps groaned to life again. Soon a cacophony of shrill alarms rang in the pumping station and all over the entire complex. They carried Jacques up, then Wendell helped his brother into a fat suit. The others were ready and suited up. What are you waiting for? Ars shouted at Nine Knives. We thought you'd... Get the fuck out of here, shouted Ars, pointing at the tank. Wendell had Jacques in his suit, was pulling his own on. Ars had his around his shoulders when he heard a screech of metal and electronic bleeding. The war brides were awake again. The one by the workstation stumbled and clattered off its perch. The other stood up unsteadily, its legs bent oddly underneath it. Go, shouted Ars. Now! Nine knives shoved Tai-Tai into the tank hatch. Aris had his suit on and grabbed Jacques, throwing him in. Wendell dove after him. The war brides were steady on their feet now and stalking towards them. Aris pushed a shouting nine knives into the hatch. You, he shouted at Chosen One and Tedex. Get the fuck in. Hell no, said Tedex. You first. Tedex and Chosen One grabbed Aris, flinging him into the hatch before he could resist. His last sight of them was their faces as they watched him hit the water. Under a patter of bullets banging against the tank, they disappeared. Yuki did her magic and the tank drainage alarms sounded. Aris found himself in the suit's darkness, watching the team's red dots descend one after the other. Nine knives, skip trace, and blind sign signals were close to each other, as were Tai Tai's, Jacques, and Wendell's. The force of the water shot them out faster than when they were drawn in. Once in the ocean, they floated to the top where they were caught up in the waiting boat's net. Once they were on deck, the boat sped off on a long, circuitous tour of the harbor before returning to the safety of a Swampskit dock. You okay? said Yuki, as Aris lay on the deck watching Wendell cradle his brother's conscious but limp body in his arms. Yeah, said Aris. We lost a couple, though. I'm so sorry, said Yuki. I did my best to prevent that. No one said anything for the rest of the ride. For the next two weeks, Aris watched and waited for the police to come, but they never did. A series of events unfolding quietly led him to believe what he'd done was bigger than just his obsession with Kimo Cho and Yuki Corp 4291. It began during the ride home in a white van waiting by the dock in Swampscott. They piled inside, quiet and exhausted. Wendell helped Jacques in, but his brother pushed him off. Skip Trace sat quiet the entire time. Nine Knives and Tai Tai cracked open beers from a cooler and passed them around. As the van rumbled out of the dockyard, raised his bottle and spoke. Tedex and Chosen One, he said. They died down and heavy. Aris nodded and clinked bottles. Wendell and Jacques kept their eyes to the floor and heads hung low. After a few minutes, Aris spoke. To Jean-Robert Brochet, he said, raising his bottle. Wendell looked at him, angry eyes brimming with tears. A father and a leader. He ain't dead yet, Beige, said Jacques. No, he isn't, said Wendell. Aris locked eyes until Wendell raised his bottle and clinked it against his. Shit, maybe I shouldn't be drinking right after I got out of there, said Jacques. 
Wendell took the bottle from his brother. Me neither, said Blindside. Shit's good, but I'm a fucking lightweight now. Got something for you here, said Nine Knives. He fished a couple plastic bottles out of the cooler and handed them to the men. Tiny Town said it's some healthy shit supposed to help you recover from being asleep in there. I need it, said Blindside. Feel like I slept an hour after a real hard week of finals. Motherfucker, you went to your exams? Oh shit, future pop, that you? said Blindside. Damn man, I didn't recognize you. Horace laughed and clinked his bottle against his friends. Hell yeah, I went to exams. My pops made me go. If my grades got below a B, shit. Who was lucky if I only got the belt? A round of tired laughter went around the van. Aris's HUD pinged and he answered the call. Control, what's up? He said. Fuck, said Yuki. Fuck, 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 fuck. What's up, said Aris. It's, they're here. He heard Yuki's voice choke, then she cleared his throat. They were there. What? said Ars. Who? They're there, she said again. At the mine farm. They were there. Who? said Ars. My family, said Yuki. Ars said nothing, listening to her crying. They were right fucking there and... Yuki, said Ars. I'm so sorry. They're right there, she said. You could have... Yuki, we didn't know. But, but... The words exploded from her mouth in bursts and sobs. We can't go back and... I know that, goddammit. Wendell looked at Aris, who shook his head. Don't you think I fucking know that? When did you... Aris took a sip of his beer. He was so tired he almost felt like hanging up. Then when did you find out? I was... She stopped to blow her nose loudly, then sobbed briefly before speaking. I was reviewing inmate records for shits and giggles, right? Then I found video feeds and ran a facial recognition on them. They buried this footage in some weird, nondescript directory, and they were... they were... She dissolved into sobs. Aris looked at nine knives who mouthed, what gives? Aris shrugged and pointed at Blindside, who was fiddling with the door handle. Nine knives distracted him as Yuki recovered. They were in those creches, she said. Alive, but they were still... I'm so sorry. Aris sipped his beer again. I thought you'd be locked out of their system once they found you got in. Oh, please, said Yuki. Her sorrow briefly melted and gave way to indignation. They can't lock me out. I clung to a workstation. It'll take months for them to find it in there. Oh, okay, said Aris. I didn't think you could... Couldn't what? Said Yuki. Keep ahead of those guys? As if. Right now, their IT director is shitting himself in a Miami Homeland Services holding cell. Mine Farm's CEO is burning up his phone while the night crew is texting him every 20 seconds about what shit went down. They're running around battening down hatches, but I can shut that fucking place down again and again if I want to. Okay, okay, said Ars. You're the man. I'm the woman, goddammit, she replied. Are your parents okay at least? Ars asked. Yeah, she said. They're okay. At least they think they are. They must revive them every so often if they're there. That's how Cho gets them to talk to me and keep me on his leash. Fucker. Aris looked out the window. The van was exiting I-93 and cruising up to street level. Look, we're almost at the garage. You good? Shit. Yeah, she said. Just, just pissed is all. I'm gonna get that fucker, but bad. Careful now, said Aris. No loose cannon shit. We still got a long way to go. Well, I got tons of footage from your feeds, she replied. Gonna have fun with that. Scrub our faces off it, all right, said Aris. kind of fucking amateur do you think I am, said Yuki. I'm glad you're feeling better, Aris laughed. I gotta go. 
Okay, bye. She said, uh, just keep an eye on Network Global News, all right? Oh, shit, said Aris. But she'd hung up. The van pulled up to an apartment building behind Holy Roller. The building was dark and the streets empty. Aris gripped the door handle and looked back at Nine Knives. You good? Solid state, said Nine Knives, flashing the heavy boy Mudra for all clear or okay. Tell Tiny Town I'm sorry about your boys, said Aris. Nine Knives nodded. The old papa will like that, he said. He'll let you know when it's safe to come by. Got it, said Aris. He opened the door to the chill night air. Jacques and Wendell slid out. Wendell waved at the heavy boys. Thanks, he said. No problem, Nine Knives said, then flashed him a gesture. Eh, not bad, said Wendell, then slammed the door closed. The van slid off into the night. Wendell looked at Aris. Where are they off to? Don't know, said Aris, digging a set of antique metal keys from his pocket. Don't care. That way, if the cops come around, it's all good. Wendell nodded. Jacques looked around at the darkness, then the street lamp on the far end of the block. That street camera gonna pick us up, said Jacques. Police gonna be by when the face like IDs me. It might, said Aris. If the camera hadn't broken so many times, the cops stopped replacing it years ago. Those are dummies, I put in. Wendell laughed. Jacques snorted. You really trust this beige, huh? He said to Wendell. With my life, Wendell replied. Aris led them to a metal gate in front of the alley between two buildings. After unlocking it, he led the others in and locked it again. The alley opened into a narrow gap between the building's rear and Holy Roller's back fence. Aris tugged at a piece of rebar, and a door cut into the metal fencing creaked open. You had this made? said Wendell. Old man put it in, said Aris, years back, so he could go drink at the paddock when he felt like it, which wasn't often, but he liked to creep around. Told me about it after I asked him to marry Manea. The son he never had, Wendell said. Inside the yard, Aris pulled the door shut and locked it. They crept around the junk in the yard until they came to the rear door. There, a tall container stood on the loading dock. Okay, Jacques, said Wendell as he pointed up to the container. You gotta get in there. The fuck? said Jacques. Merde, alors. Yeah, I got out of a freaking box. I know you're putting me back in one. It's that or get caught, said Aris. Wendell's gonna drive you out in a few minutes. It was horrible in there, he said. Most of the time you never were awake, but every so often you'd kind of notice something. It felt, it felt like a, a dream, on rev, on rev. But you could never wake up from it. Sometimes you'd be running from something or, or chasing something, but not know what it was all about or why. Aras saw the look in the man's eye, how his hands shook. You're out now, frère, said Wendell. Never going back in. But I need you to do this one thing. And then when you're out of this, it's no more boxes and fresh air only. Please? Wendell swore and shook his head, then climbed in once Wendell opened the door. Jacques swore and closed his head, then climbed in once Wendell opened the door. He closed it and slapped on a seal Aris handed him. Once it was armed and secure, they stepped inside the garage. Though it was 1 a.m., the mechanics were all still working during the biannual big cleanup Aris had scheduled. The old man started the tradition, which Aris enjoyed and continued in his tenure as boss. Twice a year, he ordered food from a dozen area restaurants, then fed the entire staff a huge meal before setting them to clean the garage, top to bottom. He withheld all liquor until they were done. By now, they were almost finished and eager to demolish the kegs waiting in buckets of ice up by the office. 
Since it was Friday, Aris didn't have to worry about them being drunk or so hungover they couldn't work in the morning. It was the perfect cover for the mind frame job. Everybody was in their bays or running all over, cleaning the place so busy they couldn't say who was or wasn't there. Aris and Wendell left earlier in the evening while doing inventory in the yard. As it went every year for the last ten years, no one would see them until it was all done because the yard was so big and, despite Aris's efforts at keeping it orderly, a benignly disorganized mess. Their return heralded cheers among the men and some joking. Aris and Wendell laughed as they walked to the office, as tired as they usually were, while out in the yard on a cleanup night. Once in the warm office, Aris dropped to his chair and rubbed his face with his hands. Wendell hung out in the shadows and looked at the street. Uh, boss, he said, think this is heat coming down on us? Aris came to stand behind Wendell. Peering outside, he could see a gleaming white MBPD paddy cruiser parked in front of the garage. The driver's arm hung out the window despite the cold night. Dunno. Um, guess I'll go see, said Aris. Stay put no matter what. Yeah, no problem, said Wendell. Aris took the stairs two at a time and grabbed two beers from a bucket by the kegs. Mr. A, said Rohan, an Indian who'd been out with him for a few years. Aris stopped. Rohan pointed at the beer, then shook his finger while smiling. You know the rules, sir. No brew until it's done by the whole crew. Right, said Aris. These are for my friends on the police force. Okay? Rohan made a gesture with both hands, part shooing him away, part resignation, then returned to scrubbing out the floor of his work bag. Aris opened one beer and downed half as he stood by the door. Belching, he opened the door and walked out to the cruiser as the garage door slammed behind him. Casal sat in the driver's seat. The cabin glowed, lit by displays of MBPD feeds, while a steady squawk of harsh voices and beeps came over the radio. Casal watched Aris approach, then nodded as he lowered the radio's volume. Evening, officer, he said. What brings you here this hour of night? Making my usual rounds, Casal replied. Aris watched as his eyes roamed over the garage's front door, yard, and gates. What about you? It's the big cleanup night, said Aris. He held out the unopened beer to Casal. You want some suds? Don't mind if I do, said Casal. After he opened it, they clinked their bottles and drank. Then Casal looked at Aris. Everything okay tonight? Sure, said Aris. Why you ask? Oh, nothing. I, I mean, you know, said Casal. Aris hoped his frown seemed casual and not panicky as Casal peered into his bottle before drinking again. Some weird things happening tonight, so I want to make sure my little corner of town was okay. Funny things, said Aris, wrapping his coat tight around him. Casal nodded and turned on up the radio. They listened while drinking. Antaskin Mogul says state troopers arrived on scene. No assist needed. Over, said a rough male voice. State units, said a female voice. What the hell for? They're already down at home by mine fun. Why are they muscling in there? Over. You got me. Over, said the male. After that drone crash, there was nothing but to pry their asses out of their seats. But suddenly, three hours later, they're freaking out, taking up, talking about quarantine, sailing off Route 3 and everything near there. Over. Jesus Christ. Over, said the female. Bastards are getting crazier and crazier. First they want total cooperation, then they're all, nope, we're fine here, you can go back to sleep. Bunch of dicks. Over. You said it, replied the male. Let Nantasket and Hingham soak in it for a while, and we'll see who's a bunch of crybabies. Over. Casal turned the radio down, then eyed Aris as he finished his beard. Weird stuff, huh? He said, handing the empty bottle to Aris. Sounds like it, said Aris. 
Guess those guys were a pain in the ass, huh? You know it, said Gasol. So, uh, anything going on I should know about? Nope, said Oz. Been quiet, but then again, I've been here running inventory, so I couldn't really tell you. That right, said Gasol. Oz nodded. And everybody in there has been working with you here all night? I'd fire them if they weren't, said Aris. Casal nodded. Aris noticed the dark circles and the distant look in his eyes. How about you? Everything okay? Just fine, Mr. A, said Casal. Just fine. Well, I guess I'd better be on my way since I've determined you've been on the premises all night. Yes, I have, officer, said Aris. Got 50-odd witnesses inside that'll tell you that, too. Okay, then, said Casal. Stay out of trouble, Mr. A. You too, said Aris. Casal nodded, rolled up the window, and drove slowly from the garage. Aris went back in, dropping the bottles and a recycler near the door. What was that about, said Wendell, when Aris was back in the office. Nothing, said Aris. Turns out there's a little uh, disturbance down on the South Shore. Casal says it's got the state police in a tizzy. A tizzy, said Wendell. Not his words, said Aris, but let's say they're kind of agitated. Huh, said Wendell. And what about around here? Nothing unusual, said Aris. I'd head home now if I were you, though. Got it, said Wendell. Guess I'll uh, see you around, huh? Yep, said Aris. He shook Wendell's hand, then his friend was out of the office on his way out. Wendell had a van stashed in the yard that he'd hustle his brother into, heading for someplace safe, though Wendell didn't tell Aris where. All Aris knew was that Monday, Wendell and his family would be off to visit relatives in Israel on a surprise trip spurred by Wendell winning cheap tickets on a suborbital El Al flight out of Logan Air and Spaceport. Aris went home around three that night after drinking for a while with the staff. They said goodnight to him, then left the garage for home or more drinking elsewhere, while Aris headed home in a cab, looking forward to sleeping in on a Saturday. Tribal Malfunctions podcast, Deep Sluice B, which was episode 15. I uh, hope you liked it. Uh, real exciting um, stuff happening in there. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope you got it. I hope I wrote it well enough, and I hope it read well enough to um, for you to get um, the stuff that was going down. Um, so keep uh, listening. I'm aiming to resume this, for real. Aiming to do about one a week, give or take. A um, couple of production notes on that. Uh, moved house from uh, the place where we started doing this podcast, and um, it's a little different recording situation. I hope uh, you didn't hear the dryer too much or people walking above me or uh, the dog or other things, but um, I'm actually going to uh, make sure I'm recording when uh, people aren't walking around in the room above us in the kitchen or anything like that. So uh, trying to keep the production values pretty uh, pretty high on this. All right, so episode 15 next week is episode 16, which uh, more stuff goes down. Um, 
I really hope you're liking it, because uh, it's a lot of fun to get back into this world again, and uh, the more I uh, re-immerse myself in it, the more I realize uh, it's not a bad story, and uh, I'm grateful for everyone who's listening. All right, y'all um, keep it up. Uh, Charles Archer Hewn is the webcast, uh, sorry, the, is the web address, the URL, if you want to check out my website. Got lots of um, music uh, for sale there and other writing. Oh, yeah, and my new comic book, Bunnyhead, uh, which will never be a podcast for fairly obvious reasons, but I think you'll uh, dig it. It's a pretty good one to check out. You can actually get that over at uh, the other website, um, CND. HMN.com. That is Charlie November Delta Hotel, uh, Mexico, November.com. Um, and uh, that's a very cool story. Uh, I think I got it going on there. Um, so check it out. Okay. Let's see. Music. I told you about that. Uh, music is also at CND, HMN, and then comics, and then the books, and the move the house, and the dog, and the everything else. Yeah, I think I got it. All right, peace out, folks, and as always, namaste. Namaste.